been studying the seven kingdom parables that Jesus taught in the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Each of these parables unveil a profound truth concerning the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, truth that could not be known unless God, in His grace, revealed them to us. Now, again, you may have noticed that we've taken our time in studying them, and I really make no apology for that. In fact, uh, we've been taking our time studying this whole book, and so should be no surprise that we've worked our way through this chapter, chapter 13, slowly, and today we won't finish the entire chapter. We'll still have some left. Uh, so uh, come back again. But I believe studying these parables has been time strategically and wisely spent. Uh, it would not be a good idea to hurry through them. For one thing, it's a great privilege to know and to understand the things taught in these parables. People who know what these parables say are uniquely blessed. Jesus himself said so. To those who first heard these parables, Jesus said back in verse 16 and verse 16 and 17, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And not only is it a blessing to know these things, I think it again, use that word, strategic. You see, understanding the things taught in these parables will result in the scriptures being opened up to us. As Jesus told his disciples at the conclusion of these parables, he said in verse 52, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And the significance of old biblical truths will become new to us in light of the mysteries of the kingdom. And new insights will be open to us in light of old truths. Now notice I did not say new revelation, okay? Uh, we don't receive new revelation, but we understand the old book better as we study it and as we understand these things Jesus is teaching. And today we come to the very last of these seven parables. In some ways it's the most crucial of them all. There is a sense of urgency behind this particular parable. It makes it absolutely essential to hear. And it's a lesson Jesus teaches us about the kingdom through a very common thing that people saw in those days as they lived and worked and strolled along the Sea of Galilee. It's a lesson concerning a fishing net. Oh, that ought to perk some ears. Here in the middle of fishing capital of Wisconsin, let's look at it. Verse 47 says, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that is cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. 
there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, those of you that know me, and you've gotten to know me a little bit over the last year and a half or so, I suppose, but you know that I'm not much of a fisherman. About the extent, about the extent, thank you, Jerry. About the extent of my fishing experience has been fishing my golf ball out of the pond when I play golf. And you know what? I don't know this for a fact, but fried golf balls don't seem very tasty these days. But uh, I have gone fishing a few times. But for all the time I've spent on the lake, and it's not much, the results have not been that great. But then, when most of us go fishing, and I think I could safely say this uh, for most of you, I don't think that you really go because you're trying to stock up for the winter necessarily, although some of you do. Most of you go for relaxation and sport. And if we didn't catch anything, it's not as if the day is a total loss. Because most of us go fishing in order to just enjoy the peace and quiet. That's one of the reasons I play golf, right, Ken? Just to stroll along in the most beautiful park in the whole city where the trees are green and the grass is neatly mowed and the flowers are blooming. Just a nice stroll in the park. That sounds like a good reason to go play golf. But some of you like to go fishing for the same reason. You go out on the lake. Beautiful scenery. And even when you do catch fish, you're only really excited if it's a certain kind of fish and it's a certain size. We may even spend money on a certain kind of lure or a particular kind of bait. So we can draw, uh, draw in that specific kind of fish that we hope to catch. Now, some fishermen even equip their boats with these special electronic fish finders. They cheat. One of them uh, would show where the fish can be found. Now, that takes a lot of fun out of it, doesn't it? But even then, we're very careful to keep in mind the legal limit but all in all, fishing as a leisure activity can be pretty particularized and picky kind of operation. Well, that kind of fishing, the fishing that most of you that fish do, is exactly opposite of our net here in the text. In the days of our Lord's ministry, and even today in many parts of the world, a net is what professional fishermen use in order to get the job done quickly and profitably. It's a large square net, sometimes made to hang upright under the water by means of floats and weights, or sometimes pulled along in the water by means of ropes attached to the fishing boats. And the purpose of the net is to draw in everything that can't, comes into its sphere. Pull it all into the surface or onto the surface or to the shore and allow the fisherman then to empty its contents into the boat or into the beach and pick through it, selecting only the best and most profitable fish and discarding the rest. 
And from a sportsman's point of view, that sounds kind of like cheating too. But for a professional fisherman, that's the only sensible way to fish. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible, you've already been familiar with how this kind of fishing works. Perhaps you remember the time when the Lord Jesus preached from Peter's fishing boat. And after he was finished, he told Peter to let down his net for a catch. And when Peter and his fellow fishermen did so, Luke tells us that they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled up both ships so that they began to sink. Now that's some real fishing. Well, then there's the wonderful story at the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus had risen from the dead. He stood on the shore and commanded Peter and his fishing partners to cast their net out to a certain spot. And when they did, the Bible tells us they were not able to draw it in for the multitude of fishes. Apparently others had to come and help, and the boats came to shore dragging the net with fishes. And the Lord had made a fire there. And he invited them to bring some of the fish that they caught. And we're told there that Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. How about that? How many of you have ever caught a hundred and fifty-three when you've been out fishing? I didn't think so. Well, isn't it interesting here that Jesus used this image, the image of a fisherman fishing with a net, to teach us this last and very crucial truth about the mysteries of heaven. Just as the net draws all kinds of fish into itself, the kingdom would throughout the untold centuries of its spread draw into its influence many, many kinds of people. This kingdom net, if you please, would not only draw people from all people groups around the world, but would also draw both the faithful and the faithless, both the just and the wicked. And Jesus is teaching us that not all who, who appear to embrace His kingdom will truly have a part in it. He warns us that at the end of the age, just after he returns to this earth to assume the full possession of his kingdom, he will separate out those who do not belong to it. And I suggest then that this kingdom parable is the most crucial of all of the parables we've been looking at. It's not crucial simply because it's the last one, but because, but because it brings all of the others together into a very practical but very urgent call especially to what we might refer to as church people. I think many, among many of the lessons we might learn from it, I believe the most important is that those of us who are drawn into the influence of Jesus' kingdom must examine ourselves now while we can and be very sure that we're really, truly a part of His kingdom. And just because someone is in the net... That doesn't mean that they are good fish. And how dreadful it would be for those bad fish 
who have assumed that they were a part of Jesus' kingdom just because they had been drawn by its influence in this age of grace, but who will at the end of the age discover otherwise. So notice with me, first of all, the casting of the net. The casting of the net. Jesus said again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea. This is meant to be a picture of the spreading forth of the message of the gospel of the kingdom into this world. And when it comes to the gospel, Jesus expressed his determination when he said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Matthew 24, verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom, that is the good news of who Jesus is, what He has done on the cross for us, is to be taken to every spot in the world. No people group in the world was to be excluded from its influence. Because Jesus commanded His disciples to make disciples of all the nations. And for that reason, the spread of the gospel is very much like casting the casting of a net into the sea. Now, in this respect, spreading the gospel is not like fishing with a rod and reel. It's not as if a particular kind of tackle is being used in order to win a particular group of people. It's our task to spread His gospel. And it's God alone who's going to do the saving. It's not our business to decide who becomes a part of the kingdom but only to spread his message. The gospel is a net that he has commanded to be cast far and wide. And we proclaim it everywhere in the confident trust that God will draw into its influence whoever he chooses. Now there is a sense in which Jesus has already taught this to us in one of his parables. He began that parable by saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Back in verse 3. And the sower cast his seed in such a way that it fell in various places. The seed fell on various different places and brought about a variety of different results. And so one of the lessons in this parable for us who are followers of Jesus is that we are to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we can and wherever he places us in life. Where has he put you? He's put you on a certain street or road in this county here uh, uh, in Wisconsin. He's given you a particular family to be a part of. He's given you a job. Wherever you are, we're to cast the net and we're to cast it widely into the sea of humanity. And as we do, we're to trust God to bring whoever He wishes into its influence. Someone as well said, we're to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. Now, this leads us to consider the next thing, and that is the drawing in of the catch. The drawing in of the catch. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it is full, they drew it to shore. Now, once... Upon the shore, the net was found to be drawn in fish that were good and fish that were bad. Now, what made fish literally good or bad? 
Well, from a Jewish standpoint, there would be some fish that could not be used for food because people were forbidden by law from doing so. You read over in Leviticus chapter 11, beginning in verse 9, that God told His people, These shall ye eat of all that are in the waters. Whatsoever hath fins and scales in the waters, in the seas and the rivers, them shall ye eat. And all that have not fins and scales in the seas and in the rivers, of all that move in the waters and of any living thing which is in the water, they shall be an abomination unto you. They shall be even abomination unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, but ye shall have their carcasses in abomination. Whatsoever hath not fins nor scales in the waters, that shall be an abomination to you. No doubt, many of the unclean fish were drawn into the net when the net was cast into the sea, along with the good. And even when it came to the fish that were considered clean food, some of the clean fish would be bad from just a strictly professional point of view. Some of the fish would have, not, would have been of poor quality or for whatever reason, they simply just didn't have any resale value, and so they weren't particularly good for food. But the purpose of the net wasn't simply to catch good fish. It was to catch as many of whatever kind of fish came into its influence and draw to the shore for inspection later. Jesus says the net was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind of fish, which when it was full, they drew to shore. Now I suspect that this would have been an aspect of the kingdom that came as a surprise, perhaps, to Jesus' disciples. And maybe a surprise to some Christians today. The disciples understood that the kingdom was now at hand. But they, like many of their Jewish kinsmen, would have expected the kingdom to be commenced in a very completely different way than that. They would have expected that right then and there, Jesus would have selected the very best of the best from the nation of Israel, excluding at the very beginning those who didn't belong, both sinful Jewish people and unwanted Gentile Roman occupiers, and let the kingdom spread on earth and grow in holiness and purity. But you know what? That was not God's plan. Instead, he throws out his net into the sea and allows many, both good and bad, to be drawn into its influence until such a time as the net is full. And people have been drawn under the influence of the kingdom because of its many attractions. They're sometimes drawn by the good that Jesus' kingdom citizens do on this earth. And so they want, to be, they want to be a part of that too. You know, you drive around the cities of our country and you'll see kingdom influence, if you please, in the names of many of hospitals. Just think of the names of hospitals that you've uh, seen across America. St. Mary's, uh, Luke. St. Luke's Hospital up in Duluth. You, know. uh, you find Samaritan used. Uh, you might find Emmanuel or Providence. You see, the kingdom influence has been across our, our, our nation. Think of ma major universities and colleges in our country and how many of them began as institutions of religious education. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has inspired countless community service and relief organizations, 
orphanages and schools are built in its service. Many people who want to be a part of it are drawn into the kingdom's influences in this way. And sometimes people are inspired by Jesus himself, but in a completely wrong way. They're inspired by the goodness of his teaching and the charms of his life. They look upon him as a great philosopher, as a religious leader, a great teacher. And sometimes people are simply religious by nature. They just love to be a part of a church community. Well, the kingdom of Jesus would draw all kinds of people under the influence for all sorts of reasons. And they will think that just because they're in the net, they must be good fish. But you know what? Many of those who are drawn into the kingdom's influence in this world and who even attach themselves to Jesus' kingdom in active ways will prove in the end to have no part of his kingdom at all. Jesus said this. We looked at it in chapter 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now this means, of course, that Jesus' kingdom will grow. It'll spread across this earth, and for a time, there's going to be a mixture of good and bad. And then, again, he has already told us in a previous parable concerning the wheat and the tares. And another lesson this parable teaches us is that we're not to be surprised when we discover the net contains both good and bad. You see, Jesus has chosen to allow his kingdom to draw its influence, both good and bad, and to make a final distinction between them at the end of the age. And that leads us to consider also the separation from the good. The separation from the good. Now, our Lord said that once the net was full and drawn to the shore, the fishermen sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away so shall it be at the end of the world. He tells us that at that time, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from among the good. He will at that time make a distinction. Again, that's not the way you and I might have thought of, it, of doing it. Perhaps we thought, well, we need to send down some scuba divers down there and keep those bad fish out of that net. We need to kind of help the good fish to come in. So why is it the Lord has chosen to grow His kingdom this way? Why does He allow the bad to be drawn into the influence of the kingdom and to be mixed up and mingled with the good for such a long period of time? That's a good question. I think ultimately we must say, I don't know. And humbly bow to the Lord's wisdom. But I can think of at least two reasons why it may be that he has done this in this way. For one thing, I believe that our Lord allowed this because he is great in mercy and grace. As Apostle Peter once wrote, he said, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a 
as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's a good and merciful Savior. And when the final judgment comes, no one who heard His gospel will be able to say that He did not give him ample opportunity to believe and trust Him. No one under the influence of his gospel net, if you please, will be able to have an excuse for not knowing him and trusting him as they should. But I think there's another reason why it may be that the Lord allows the bad to be drawn with the good for so long is in order to ultimately show display of himself clearly as righteous and just in judgment. He's the righteous and just judge who clearly distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous, as we'll see. We'll see this later in our study of Matthew. So this, then, is another lesson concerning Jesus' kingdom. We are to understand that though the kingdom will draw into its influence both the righteous and the wicked, and though we ourselves may not always be able to tell the difference, Jesus knows who are truly His within that net. On the great day of judgment, when the net is pulled ashore, he will see to it that the bad fish are separated from the good, both to the praise of his grace and the glory of his justice. And that leads us to a final but very sobering thing to consider, and that is the judgment of the bad. I think it's very instructive that in this parable, the Lord doesn't tell about the destiny of those who are his just ones. But in the parable of the wheat and tare, he does tell about their destiny. He tells that on that day when he returns to this earth and commences his earthly reign with a great separation, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. But there is no joyful note here in this parable. Instead, Jesus ends this dreadful word of warning that angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire and there shall be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I suggest that this underscores the main purpose of this parable, a parable that comes at the end of all the others. It's meant to be a word of warning. It's calling us to have who have come under the influence of Jesus' kingdom to, with the utmost sense of seriousness and urgency, be very sure that we truly belong to His kingdom. Some people may say that they prefer Jesus' teaching in the Bible over those nasty, harsh apostles. You know, those apostles, they say, especially like Paul, oh, he was, he was uh, hard to listen to. They preached a lot of talk about hell and judgment and fire. But Jesus, he also always spoke of love and acceptance. Is that true? They haven't read their Bible if they say that. Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus spoke more about eternal punishment than anybody else in the Bible. And what's more, he used horribly graphic terms to describe it. And there's a reason. It's because He is the Savior of mankind who will also one day come as the judge of all the earth. He loves people more than they realize. 
and does not wish them to suffer the eternal punishment that he promise, promises that will be un, out, uh, poured out on the wicked. And so he speaks in horrible terms about that eternal judgment. And it's because he does not want people to experience it. Now look at what he says here. He says at the end of the world, that is the end of the current period of grace, the time between his first coming as Savior and the day when he will return again as judge, during that, this day when us poor, wicked sinners may be drawn into his kingdom influences and believe his gospel and come to know him by faith and live in obedience to him as just followers. And at the end of this age, the wicked will be cast into a furnace of fire. There, he says, shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, wailing suggests anguish. The place of eternal judgment is a place of conscious torment. I believe that one of the greatest aspects of this torment will be the eternal separation from the one who made us for himself, but whom we did not desire while we were on this earth. The wicked did not want to bow to him. They did not want to serve him. They didn't even want to know him. And then to their eternal anguish, they will have what they wanted. But it's startling to me, it was startling to discover this phrase, gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth suggests malice. Do you know that every other time this phrase, gnashing of teeth, is mentioned in the Bible, it describes intense hatred and malice? King David wrote of how the wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth, Psalm 37, 12. Or hypocritical mockers in feasts, they gnashed upon me with their teeth in Psalm 35, 16. Lamentation speaks of how the enemies of Israel have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash their teeth. And in the book of Acts, after Stephen preached to the Jewish leaders just before they rose up and stoned him to death, we're told they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Could it be that those who once made a great profession of being in Jesus' net, but who in fact refused to truly humble themselves before Him and know Him by faith, will one day in judgment show their true character and gnash at Him with their teeth? What a horrible thought. And this then is the greatest and most important lesson, I believe, to be learned from this crucial kingdom parable. Those who are drawn into the influence of Jesus' kingdom must be sure, very sure, they are truly a part of it. Paul gave this word of warning to a church full of professing Christians. He said, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves, know ye not your own selves, how Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate. And I believe we should not ignore the word of warning. We need to take this very seriously. We need to examine ourselves as if that self-examination was the most important thing you could possibly do. Because it is. There is nothing in this world more important than making this examination. 
Do you have an ongoing, growing relationship with God? Is Jesus Christ truly in you? Do you demonstrate the clear, unmistakable evidence of a transformed life, the kind of transformed life that proves that He dwells in you? This parable warns us that just because you've been drawn into the influence of the kingdom, and in a sense that could be true of everyone that's here this morning. This church, by the way, is not the kingdom, okay? I'm not saying that. But you've been drawn into the influence. This is a Bible-believing Christian church. We believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. You've been drawn into, for whatever reason this morning, you're here. But let me urge you to examine yourself. Make sure you have a place in that kingdom. And that at the end of the age, Jesus will say, eh, you're not here. What a horrible thing to be, to think of. That when Jesus said, I never knew you. Yeah, but Lord, I went to church. I went to Spooner Baptist Church. I never knew you. Make sure that you've trusted Jesus Christ by faith. Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious word again. Lord, these parables certainly should cause us to do some deep, deep reflection upon our lives and the decisions that we've made and or not made. Lord, if there's someone here this morning, and even as I said earlier, Lord, I know that church is not necessarily for the unsaved, but it's for the saved to be challenged, to be encouraged, to go out and to give the gospel to our neighbors and our co-workers and everyone. But we know that many times people are drawn into the influence of your kingdom. And certainly this church is a part of that influence. There may be even someone here this morning who's said all the right words. Maybe they've even said enough right words to become a member. But Lord, they've never truly trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Lord, what a shame it would be for people to come to Spooner Baptist Church and not know that there's a Savior who has redeemed them from the eternal punishment for those who do not know Christ. And Lord, so I pray that if there's someone like that this morning in this congregation, we just pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God will do His work in their heart. And those of us who know You, who've put our trust in You, we pray, Lord, that we'll not be proud in any way that we're one of the good fish, So, Lord, help us to examine our lives and make sure that we're living as we should for your honor and for your glory. Help us to be faithful in getting the gospel message out to those we come in contact with. Challenge our hearts with this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.